Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 132 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. How you doing today? I'm doing good, man. I'm ready for the start of the week. You know, last week wasn't the best for the market. Everyone's feeling doom and gloom out there. Yeah, and you huh? know what? Me? I don't care. <laughs> That's a good attitude to have. I don't care. Because yeah, it's another another rough uh, start to the week. And I think people are concerned over inflation and the Fed beginning to raise interest rates and wind down their balance sheet. And this is reminiscent of September to me. And yeah. what I mean by that is if, if listeners or viewers, if you go back to September, it just felt like, oh, that was the beginning. You know, the, the, the Fed, the, the, the inflation issue, the supply issues were just so far out there. And then a couple of months later, no one remembered September. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are going to be paying attention to uh, Wednesday when we get the inflation data from December yeah. uh, and see if that's going to overshoot, undershoot or coming in line with expectations. What I'll say is this. A lot of cash on the sidelines. Fundamentals earnings are going to be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Just remember, this market can turn. It can turn quick. Mm -hmm. But weakness and sell offs are normal. I wouldn't read into this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, before we begin, I just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance uh, for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on January 7th. So these are year to date numbers for 2022. Uh, S&P 500 index down 1.87% for the year. The Dow down 0.3% for the year, so holding up better than the, the broader indexes that we track. The NASDAQ composite down 3.6% for the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 2.87% for the year. Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, is flat for 2022 so far. Got some outperformance by international. I know. That's finally, a weird thing. Finally. Uh, the three-month T-bill yielding 0.1%, the two-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.87%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is at 1.77%, Matt. And uh, the thing that sticks out to me is that these shorter duration treasury bonds, uh, interest rates are starting to creep up faster than longer uh, duration bonds like the 10-year treasury. Um, so not saying that we're getting to a yield curve that's, that's flat yet, but those shorter term bonds are creeping up a little faster on the rate scale than the longer term bonds are. And for for people who might not know what uh, the yield curve is, it's like anything else, right? So we're able to, you know, not have as much risk in the short term as it is in the long term, right? So it's it's less risky to lock up your money for three months than it is for 30 years, right? So you would expect to get compensated more for that risk by buying, let's say, a 30-year treasury bond than a three-month T-bill because there's more risk over 30 years than in three months, right? Yeah. Um, but if we get to the point where 
where shorter term treasuries are yielding more than long term, that's telling me that the bond market's pricing in more risk now. Yeah, that's than, an inverted that's an inverted yield curve. Right, then down the road. Correct. Um and and typically when we see a yield curve invert, it tends to precede recessions in the future. So that's something that we that that wouldn't be good, I don't think. That would definitely be bearish. Um so so I don't want to get anyone up in arms over it, but that's just something that I have been noticing over the past couple of weeks. I definitely think it's something to note, Mark. I mean, here's what I'll say about the bond market for listeners and viewers. The market is pricing in what the Fed is about to do this year. And what is it about to do? It needs to start normalizing monetary policy. It needs to be less accommodative. And in doing so, you're shocking the system. It's no different from having a patient on a constant drip of medication. And when you start taking that medication away, the patient has to get used to that. Mm -hmm. And that's the market right now. This is the volatility that you're seeing. And this is almost, this is normal. If I didn't see this, I guess I would start to be concerned. Right. So to see the way the bond market is acting and these rates moving higher, that to me is not bad. Mm -hmm. Now, it's expected. We talked about this a week ago and we talked about when the Fed starts changing monetary policy, the specific note is when it does its first interest rate rise. But it still applies when the Fed starts to make changes, the market's going to get rocked in the beginning. But then when you look out past those initial three months, the market does just fine statistically when you look at the past. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't read into it too much. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, <clears throat> big news, current uh, uh, events from the past week, uh, staying on the interest rate conversation, the 10-year Treasury yield uh, is at its highest level since February of 2020. So I know we just kind of talked about that map, but anything else um, you want to add there? It's that, 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 that's insane. I mean, to sit there and say the initial jobless claims are the lowest in 52 years, mm -hmm. I mean, what does that say about the employment market? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and listeners, and, and excuse me for my, my speech, I just got Invisalign. So I'm, I'm, still, getting <laughs> used to, I'm still getting used to speaking yeah. uh, at my normal rate uh, mm -hmm. with these bad boys. But, um, it but right, just, so, those, so those two are kind of tied together, right? Because, you know, you have, you, have, uh, you have yields at their highest level since February of 2020. And then, you know, jobless claims came in under 200,000. Uh, what for does the that last tell you about December. the economy? That it's strong and that and, we can handle higher rates, and right? And who wants to be buying bonds at these rates knowing the underlying economy is strong, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So it kind of goes back to the philosophy of who wants to lock up their money for 10 years at 1.77% like you quoted earlier? Mm -hmm. I know there there's a need for that and there's people who are buying that. But when the economy's strong, you would expect the yield on those bonds to go up. Right. Because, because you, have to create, have, you have to create an incentive for people to buy it. To buy yeah. yeah. This is not bad. Yeah. The market, people are going to have all this cash on the sidelines, look around at each other in a couple of weeks when earnings come out and say, wow, XYZ does make a lot of money. I guess I better invest some cash in it. Mm -hmm. And everyone's going to chase them. Yeah. I feel like I'm on a soapbox today. <laughs> I love getting you on a, on a soapbox. I have a feeling More by the end of this podcast, not. I'm going to get really worked up. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, in other news, uh, Ohio is one of 21 states where many low-wage workers are going to enjoy a pay hike this year. Ohio's minimum wage has risen 50 cents an hour from $8.80 to $9.30, or an increase of about 5.7%. Workers who receive tips will see an increase in minimum pay from $4.40 per hour to $4.65 per hour. Uh, also an increase of 5.7%. So um, good to see that things are getting adjusted or indexed for inflation. Yeah. And, you know, I'll throw this out there. You know, capitalism, it's doing its job with with minimum wages, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, you could take what I call the Amazon effect happening, where in a lot of communities where now Amazon has distribution facilities, you've seen a lot of the average pay come up to the high teens because mm-hmm. of that and that is capitalism working that's supply and demand working its way this minimum wage stuff is so antiquated in my opinion no one really is posting a sign and getting people for nine dollars and 30 cents an hour right now yeah yeah and this is how you know our our society works right right now People, or excuse me, uh, employees or people looking for jobs have the power right now. They do. Where for a while it was employers who had the power, but that's how capitalism works, right? It goes back and forth. And I know a lot of people have complained about the capitalism system. Guess what? When employers had the power, power, but I don't. I'm not hearing a lot. It works both ways. Employees have the power. It works both ways, and now the pendulum has swung the other way. Right. And I think the biggest risk now to these wages is going to be technologically productivity gains. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest risk to these wages over the next decade, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because if we look back at history, we just know things are going to get more efficient. Companies are going to be more productive and they're going to continue to utilize technology as much as they can. That's right. You know, the computer doesn't call in sick. The computer doesn't get COVID. Right. All right. Um, Okay, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. Um, Santa Claus came to town this year, Matt. Um, If you've been listening to our most recent episodes, we've discussed the importance of the Santa Claus rally indicator, which has a pretty impressive track record of showing what the rest of the year will look like for stocks. And the S&P 500 index was up 1.4% for the final five trading days in 2021 and the first two trading days in 22, which does historically bode well for the rest of the year, although nothing's guaranteed, of course. Um, but the, the larger piece here, Matt, that I think is more important to pay attention to is when the Santa Claus rally period, the last five days of last trading year, first two days of this trading year, when that's negative, that tends to be a pretty ominous sign for the market. But we did not get that this year. So that makes me at least a little more comfortable when I look at that data. I wish I had a huge like bell. I could just like start like ringing it. <laughs> but then, but the first five days of January, however, uh, that indicator I discussed last week uh, were negative. So the first five days of January were negative. So we have one component of the January trifecta that is positive and one that is negative. The final component is the full month of January barometer. We also like to see that come in positive. So. We still have a little over half the month to go here, so we'll see where that ends up for the market for the rest of the year. And again, comment, one, go ahead. one comment I have is just as I kind of see the way the market's starting off this year, 
expect volatility throughout this year to be higher than it was in 21 listeners. Mm -hmm. Meaning pullbacks of more than the greatest of 5.2%, I think, in S&P last year. I mean, last year, it felt like a pullback of 5%. And we had some pullbacks at 4 or 5%. It felt like 10 or 11%. Mm -hmm. We're going to get, in my opinion, I think we'll at least get a 10% correction at some point this year. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's just for the major market indices. There were, you know, most stocks had severe corrections oh, yeah. in, in 2021. Absolutely. Right? Down at least 20%. Oh, yeah. So there was, I think there was a sneaky, there were sneaky pullbacks underneath the surface. But if you're just looking at it from an index level, it was pretty smooth sailing. <laughs> Got it. Right. Exactly. I'm with you. Um, Next thing I had was a tweet from Callie Cox. Uh, she tweeted another insane fact that since 1950, the S&P 500 index has been up at least 20% in more years than it's been down. Want to know why all the talking heads predict that stocks will rise each year? Because they usually do. <laughs> the S&P 500 has clocked positive returns in 73% of years since 1950 with a median return of 11.8%. It's gained more than 10% in over half of those years. So since 1950, Matt, the S&P 500 has risen more than 20% in a year 19 times. The index has only been negative in 18 years since 1950. That's pretty mind-blowing. Mind-blowing stat, I think. It is. Um, and it just goes to show you that, you know, if you're stock in the market is a long term jo- wealth generating machine. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're in it in the market for the right reasons, then, you know, and you just stick to your your plan and don't freak out, then it, it tends to do pretty well for you. So what's a good inflation hedge? You're looking at it. Yeah. Right there. Right there. Because that's I mean, because stocks pay dividends. They have earnings growth. Right. So if you have a, a let's say a stock that's paying you know, a, a 2% dividend or a 3% dividend on top of that, the average historical return has been even 12 or 13%. You're doing pretty well against inflation, especially during times for right now, right? Amen. Um, next thing I had was a tweet from Charlie Bellello. Uh, he said that the S&P 500 ends the year up 28.7% total return, which is, for listeners that don't know what that is, it's price appreciation, including dividends. Yes, sir. Um, it has finished higher in 12 out of the last 13 years and 17 out of the last 19 years. Over the last three years, the S&P 500 has more than doubled, plus 100%. Its highest three-year return since 1997 to 1999. And I don't say that to be a fear monger just because that was right before the tech bubble. I'm just I'm just throwing it out there that we've had very strong returns over the past decade. Yeah, and when you said that, you know the first thing that came to my mind? Oh, I, I know what people are going to think. Mm-hmm. Here's the difference. Going. A big move in 97 and 99 was not on fundamentals. It was on, oh, where all this new technology is going to go. These companies had no earnings. They were bleeding cash. I think the underlying fundamentals of the larger companies that have really moved these indices is actually there compared to 97 to 99. Right. And the earnings growth is there. The profit margins are there. Yeah. I talked about it like three or four podcasts ago. I looked at the market from 2019 to now, its growth. And guess what? EPS growth matched it. Mm-hmm. Shocker. Mm-hmm. 
didn't happen then. No, no, it definitely didn't then. So, um, yeah, it's been the emperor has clothes, right? Right. I mean, eventually the party will stop, but of course, I think does. this is just a perfect uh, example case of that. You know, bull markets can last a lot longer than people think. Earnings is your tell. Price action over a longer term is your tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So uh, all I had uh, for this week, Matt, so I'll turn it over to you. I only have two things this week for listeners. Okay. Okay. My first is an update on historical quarterly performance of the stock market. Now, this is according to Argus Research on January 3rd, Mark. So they posted this chart in going back to 1980, the average first quarter performance for the S&P is 2.14%. The second quarter is 3.24. The third quarter is barely positive at 048 and the fourth quarter is 4.56. Now, you take a second and remind listeners where they can find this information. Yeah, on Twitter, at uh, Jessup Wealth, or uh, Facebook, or LinkedIn, at uh, Jessup Wealth Management. So what was really interesting to me as well is when you dissect January just that month, it averaged an advance of just 1%, which was positive. And if you look at um, the actual winning percentage, Q1, it's up about 67% of the time. Now, Q1 has not always been easy. Mm -hmm. So Q1 had its fair share of clunkers. So you got 20, uh, 2020, you had coronavirus down 20% that quarter. Mm -hmm. 2009, after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, deep recession, it was down almost 12%. And in the dot-com bubble of 2001, it was down 12%. So again, doesn't always necessarily mean Q1 is good. Mm -hmm. Last, Argus uh, slid this in there, and I wanted to share this, uh, this view with listeners. They said, and I quote, current fundamentals, including low interest rates, recovering GDP, and expectations for a double-digit EPS growth, are positive for stocks, but higher valuations are no longer rock bottom, implying that earnings have to drive results. Now, I'm going to say that one last thing, expectations for double-digit EPS growth. Mm -hmm. Again, underlying earnings and fundamentals have followed these stock gains, unlike the late 90s. Mm -hmm. I want to throw that out there. So that was the piece from Argus. Any comments from you? Well, yeah, I think that's when, <clears throat> you know, that's potentially when the party stops is when the fundamentals stop companies, the stock yeah, price companies gains. stop growing their earnings, right? Not seeing that right now. Not yet. I know that there's a lot of thumpers out there saying that that's going to happen this year, but who who knows if it's going to happen or not? We're not going to know until we point. have earnings season. Yeah, it'll happen right? at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the banks report. Um this quarter because i mean theoretically you know interest rates are going up so banks should start becoming excuse me more profitable than they have in the past so it'll be interesting to see um if they've been affected yet true uh, my next piece has to do with the bond market i previewed this last week um for listeners there was a chart by uh charlie bellello on january 2nd and it shows the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, its total return from 1977 
to 2001 on an annual basis. Again, will you remind listeners, define total return, Mark? So for, uh, <clears throat> for stocks, it's um, the price appreciation of a stock or an, or an index fund, something like that, uh, plus their dividends. But for bonds, it's the price appreciation plus the interest payment that you're receiving. Correct, sir. Yep. So what this chart will indicate is that going back to 1977, there were only two down years for this Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. 1994, it was down 2.9. 1999, it was down 0.8%. 2013, it was down 2%. And in 2021, it was down 1.5. Okay? Mm -hmm. So why am I bringing this to listeners' attention? I think investors in bonds are not used to negative returns. Mm -hmm. With interest rates at their current levels, Mark, I think it's going to be hard for bonds to replicate some of their historical returns, especially over the next several years. Second item, I think a lot of bonds, I think in a lot of bonds, there is more risk than meets the initial eye. What are some of those risks? First is interest rate risk. That's the risk you were talking about earlier. You buy a 10-year U.S. Treasury today at 1.77%, and a year later, that same bond's yielding 2.5%, and a fictitious example, the value of that bond is going to go down. Right. What's the other risk? Credit risk. And that's the risk of you getting your money repaid to you. Mm -hmm. So if you loan money to a lower credit quality company in order to get a higher interest rate payment, you run the risk that that company is not able to roll that debt upon maturity, and they may have a potential for default. Mm -hmm. And this is one of my concerns with the rates so low, people are stretching for yield. You really got to understand what you're getting yourself into. Mm -hmm. And so when I see this chart and I see these returns, and the reason I'm highlighting this is I think there's this perception in the marketplace, stocks have volatility. I know that risk more than I know the risk of a bond, which I've been told is safe. Mm -hmm. How can I lose money in a bond? Right. And that is the perception that I think people are about to have a hard reality in. I'm not saying all bonds, mm -hmm. but I'm saying in the area, it's not going to be as easy as it was in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it's a pretty <clears throat> interesting chart from, um, from Charlie. In 1982, bonds returned 32.6%. Is that what it says? Yeah. 32.6% in 1982. Think it's, about being a conservative bond manager and posting 32%. Yeah. 1995, 18.5%. But yeah, bond, I mean, bonds can go down too. I think, yeah, there is a misconception out there that, that bonds are safe and not volatile. And I think you can make an argument that during... A lot of times they are less volatile than stocks, but they can be volatile in their own right, too. Remember when I started in the business in the late 90s and the early 2000s, we were buying some individual corporates, and an issue we were buying a lot of was an 8% 10-year IBM bond back then. And IBM was a very, very strong mm -hmm. back at that time. Yeah. Could you imagine buying an 8% <laughs> no. 
IBM bond back in the early 2000s. Yeah. You'd be buying that stuff hand over fist right now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. People would, would die for that right now. Yes, they would. Um, all right. So the financial planning topic of the week, uh, this comes from the Oblivious Investor blog written by Mike Piper. And Mike had a reader write in and ask about what tax filings are necessary to file after someone passes away. So this is another one of those extremely important um, topics that I think isn't talked about enough, um, especially for executors of wills uh, to know um, so that things can be closed out properly for the individual that passes away. And, um, you know, I don't really think we've gotten too deep into this on the show before, Matt. And I don't think we have. Like many other things in our industry, it's not a fun topic to talk about, but it's a necessary one because uh, I bet a lot of people are going to be put in this position and not really necessarily know what to do, right? Um, So just to give people some background, this person wrote in asking, uh, a family member appears to be in his final days. I have not seen his will, but I have been told that I am named as executor. I have never before been named an executor, so I am doing some research on what my responsibilities will be. Could you perhaps discuss what tax filings will be necessary? And Mike starts by saying, one thing you should know is that if you choose to accept the role of executor is that you're allowed to hire assistance, an attorney to guide you through the process and or a tax professional to prepare the necessary returns. And I think that's important. So you don't have to go at this alone. Absolutely. Right. Um, So some basic definitions. What exactly is an estate? An estate is a legal entity that comes into being when a person dies. The purpose of the estate is to gather the decedent's assets, pay the decedent's debts and expenses, and distribute the remaining assets. The estate exists until all of the assets have been distributed to heirs or other beneficiaries. The executor is the person named in the will to administer the estate. If no will exists, no executor is named in the will, or if the named party refuses to serve as executor, the court will appoint an administrator to perform the same functions. And I want to point out for people that are in the process of naming executors, I think it's always a good idea to check with people before you just name them, because there are people out there that don't want to do it. That's right, because just because you name someone, they're not obligated to do it. They can be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. And I'm going to pass. It's a little bit more of a challenging process, I would say, if it's just a court appointed administrator that gets put as the executor. So make sure whoever you want to serve as your executor is okay doing so, because you would rather have someone I think that's close to you doing it. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. um, Form 1040. So everyone should be uh, familiar with a 1040. It's the individual tax return. Um, But in this case, it's the final individual tax return for the person that passed away. So the executor must file the final income tax return for the uh, decedent for the year of the death, as well as any returns from prior years that have not been filed. The final tax return is due on the same date it would have been due if the death had not occurred, which is typically April 15th of the following year. However, the past couple of years, that date's been pushed back due to COVID. Correct. Um, For the final return and any returns for prior years not yet filed, the executor may choose to file a joint return with the uh, decedent's surviving spouse, if applicable. That's a tough one for me to say, decedent. I can't say it right now with Invisalign. I'll murder that. Um, 
Form 1041. So this is different from Form 1040, which is the income tax return for the estate. The executor also must file an income tax return for the estate for each year that the estate remains open. The estate has to pay tax each year on any income it earns that is not distributed to beneficiaries. Form 1041 is where all such income and distributions are reported and where the resulting income tax is calculated. And I think this is why it's beneficial to get the estate closed as soon as possible, Matt, is so that you don't have to keep filing all these income tax returns for the estates, because that could begin to be a big pain in the butt. Absolutely. I'll give you example, listeners. Uh, portfolio income, dividends, interest. Um, it could be capital gains distributed from a mutual fund. Could be a pension over a guaranteed period of time. I can keep going, but that stuff's going to keep rolling until you close the sucker out. Right, right. <clears throat> so, again, if it's a, a person that's known to the family and they're doing their best to distribute the assets to the beneficiaries, they're working in your in the beneficiary's best interest because they don't want to wait until January first of twenty twenty two to get things done. They'd rather get it all done by December 31st or else they're going to be in charge of filing, you know, another income tax return for the estate. And it's just more work that they have to do. So yeah, and, and what you tend to see is that when executors are doing distributions from an estate, they tend to hold some money back for that unknown tax bill. Mm -hmm. Because the last thing you want to do is over distribute, then go back to beneficiaries and, and say, say, Hey, hey <laughs> I'm going to need about 20 grand back for this tax bill, right? You know, that's yeah. hard. Yeah, very, very hard. Um, last is form 706, which is the estate tax return. Ooh. Form 706 uh, is the estate tax return. It's the return relating to the federal estate tax filed once, whereas form 1040 discussed above is the income tax return for the estate filed every year until the estate is closed. Form 706 generally only has to be filed if one of two things are true. The gross estate plus taxable gifts made during the person's lifetime, i.e. gifts beyond the annual gift tax exclusion amount, which is $15,000 per person, exceeds the applicable threshold of $12,060,000 for 2022. Or the executor elects to transfer the deceased spousal unused exclusion amount to the surviving spouse. If Form 706 must be filed, the executor must file by nine months from the date of death with a six-month extension possible. Go ahead. So what I was going to say is if estate tax is due nine months after passing, they don't want land, mm -hmm. they don't want stock, they don't want gold, mm -hmm. they don't want uh, equity in your private business, what do they want, Mark? Cash. C notes, baby. Yeah. <laughs> they want the cash. So right. again, <clears throat> the majority of people won't have to do this, but if you are the executor of a larger estate, this could come into play. That's right. So um, in addition uh, to all those federal documents we just talked about, um, there's generally going to be forms to file at the state level as well. Um, so income tax return for the decedent, income tax return for the estate, and potentially a state tax uh, estate tax return if the state has an estate tax as well, which is typically way lower than the federal, but that still could happen. Yep. Um, anything else you want to add on, on that front, Matt? I just know that those are things that we've discussed with clients, uh, behind closed doors, just because it's not a, it's not an everyday thing that you're dealing with. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, first thing that comes to mind, no one likes to talk about their mortality, but it's easier to plan for these things when you're with us. And so as tough as it is to um, think about that stuff and make a decision, what I want to say is this, you not doing anything is making a decision. Yeah. And guess what? It's not, it's not a, good, a good one. No, it's not. It's and not. I know it, it and, and it's not easy to say, and it's not easy to hear, but unfortunately it has to be said and not doing anything is making a decision. Right, exactly. And it's like the same as anything else. If if a, a beneficiary passes away, it's up to you to update that, that beneficiary on your account. Um, it's the same thing for the executor of your will. If the executor of your will passes away, you better sh- make sure you update that or guess what? The courts are going to name that person. Yep, not fun to talk about, but it has to be pointed out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, anything else before we wrap up for the week? You know, we're about to embark on earnings season. We talk about this every quarter. So from the middle of January here to about the first week of February, a bulk of publicly traded companies will report their earnings for the previous quarter, which in this case is Q4 of 2021. Um, the market's going to go through spats of volatility. There's times where selling causes selling. You're seeing that over the past week. Um, what tends to happen is you have a lot of cash on the sidelines. People start thinking, oh, what else am I going to do with this money? Earnings come out. They're actually pretty darn good. So don't let this volatility derail you from your longer term game plan. The fundamentals are right around the corner. And I think you're going to see some positive reactions to that. My two cents. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of noise out there right now. There always is. So yep. Stick to your game plan, people. Uh, We'll leave it there uh, for the week, Matt. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in to episode number 132. We will be back with you next week. Have a wonderful week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.